Dear listeners, welcome to this latest episode of the podcast series, The Way Out is In. I'm Joe Confino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems evolution. And I am Brother Fab Hu, a Zen Buddhist monk in the tradition of Zen Master Tikkhan in the community of Plum Village. And today, Brother Fab Hu, we are going to be talking about how to stay centered in difficult and dark times. How do we keep our joy? How do we keep our happiness when we know of all these troubles in the world? And we're going to look at one particular. Deep teaching within Buddhist philosophy, the two dimensions: the ultimate dimension and the historical dimension. The way out is in. Hello, dear listeners. I am Joe Confino, and I'm Brother Fab Hu. And today, brother, we have an honoured guest, Brother Fab Lin. Do you want to just—he's been with us once before, but do you want to just introduce him to those who haven't heard about him before? Yes, we have a returning guest, Brother Fab Lin, or some of us we call him Brother Spirit because that's what it means. And Brother Fab Lin has been in our community for a long time. He's a Dharma teacher, and he. Was a composer and still is a composer, but now under the brown robe and the bald head. And the music that you just heard was produced by Brother Fablin, as well as a lot of the chanting that we do in Plum Village was um, produced by Brother Fablin. And it is a wonderful, wonderful honor to have him as a guest to go in through this philosophy, this teaching, this insight of. The historical dimension and the ultimate dimension, because Brother Fablin is much smarter than I am. Well, both of us together, actually, <laughs> <laughs> and that is why we needed his support because we both felt quite clueless when we when we looked at this topic. We're like, hmm, we well, need help. Speak for yourself, brother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I completely understand these teachings. <laughs> sure, you do. Um, we took about thirty minutes preparing for this uh, episode right before this recording. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> So, brother Fablin, do you want to just uh, say hello and say how you're feeling today? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back. It's great to be with you again. And um, yeah, I'm I'm feeling a a mixture. In fact, the perfect mixture of historical and ultimate. Knowing that uh, you know Russia is in the middle of uh, a draft. You know, hundreds of thousands of young men getting pulled from their families and. Um, and their workplace and even their studies um, and being forced to go and fight a war that most of them don't want to fight in. Um, so I'm with the grief of that. I'm really feeling it since yesterday, actually. Um, and at the same time, you know, getting to live this amazing life in Plum Village where we have so many opportunities to take care of ourselves, to keep coming back to the present moment, to keep going, going deep. We, we have sitting meditation in the morning and then silent meals and then we get to sit with and you know offer teachings to people who are really inspired to to go deeper and understand themselves and us understand their suffering and and their joy and and then we have walking meditation then we have another meal in silence and it's just kind of so many opportunities to actually put these teachings into practice that somehow with all the grief i actually feel 
yeah, I, I, I feel that I can touch a kind of peace in the midst of all of that. Great. And that, that, thank you, Brother Fabian. That's such a wonderful example, isn't it, of this idea that, that a lot of people feel that if they're seeing, if they're feeling grief, that that has to be all of them, that you can't be, you can't grieve for something and find happiness or joy. And I think, I think the purpose, in a sense, of this podcast is, is to help people and rethink it ourselves of how can we actually, as you say, feel that a deep grief and also feel a joy that they are not in conflict with each other. And so understanding the relative historic stroke historical dimension and the ultimate dimension is such a beautiful way to sort of uh, draw us into that. So brother, do you want to start off with a little bit about just, um, just to give people a flavor? What, what do we mean by two dimensions? Right. So, um, Part of the difficulty with this teaching, I think, is that it sounds like a description of reality. It sounds like we're saying, uh, you know, that reality is made up of these two different dimensions. But I understand it more as the sense in which our minds uh, interpret reality in two fundamentally different ways and apparently contradictory ways. But reality is just itself. It's just getting on with being itself. And it's perfectly fine with, you know having this apparent contradiction at the heart of it. It's just our brain that struggles to, to reconcile these two things. So, so the, the, the apparent contradiction is um, actually sort of throughout Buddhist teaching, it's, it's, it's really there because when you first come to a Buddhist monastery, they tell you, you have to practice, you know, you have to, uh, you know, you, you only have one lifetime. Um, you have to use your time well, don't waste your time. Practice sitting meditation, let your hair's on fire, uh, you know, break through your illusions and transform all your afflictions. And, you know, time is running out, time is short. So there's that aspect. And then as you go deeper in the teachings, they say, nothing to do, nothing to worry about. It's all everything, you know, the, the work has already been done. You can just relax, enjoy the practice of non-practice. You know, uh, you already are what you want to become. Everything is already complete since the non-beginning um, you know, and so it seems very strange. So it's like, what do I have to do? Do I have to work really hard and struggle and strive and try to, you know, understand my suffering and, and transform? Or or can I just sit back and, you know, lie in a hammock and relax and, you know, just enjoy like that? Um, so those, that, that kind of sums up a little bit, these two contradictory, apparently contradictory attitudes. Another way of seeing it is that, you know, um, in the historical dimension, we understand that there is time. Time is passing. Uh, we're in the present moment. The future hasn't yet come. The past is already gone. Um, things are outside of each other. You know, I'm sitting over here. You're sitting over there. Fapu is over there. Uh, and we are apparently separate. You know, I'm separate from my father, from my mother, from... Um, you know, from, from the, from the world, I am myself. There are, there are things outside of me. You could say, you know, Ty once said that in that world, like the cow is outside of the ice cream, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's the historical dimension. Um, things are made up of other things. Things are composed of parts, right? So that's what we learn in science. That everything is made up of, um, you know, atoms and molecules and or, and or down you know beyond the atomic the, to the subatomic 
you know, to the quarks, the gluons, the all that other stuff. Um, it seems to be made up of ever smaller things um, that can all be ultimately sort of teased apart and separated and identified. Um, so that's the historical. And then the ultimate is this sense in which we start to, um, which, you know, which many poets, I think, touch, po poets and artists and, and meditators all touch this sense that everything is interconnected. The all is in the one. You look into an oak leaf, you see the tree. You see not only the tree, but you see the whole forest. You see the whole earth. You see, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, time, space, consciousness. It's all there, uh, so in somehow implicit in the in whatever you look at, whether it's a leaf or a you know a block of concrete. Honestly, it's not you know it's like everything is in everything else. So this 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 kind of uh, and 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 that's in the realm of space, but also in time. So in this moment, this present moment, um, from the point of view of the ultimate, we can see that the whole of the past history of the cosmos has given rise, has brought about to this has brought about this moment. And so in a sense, all of that past is in this moment. And this is the interbeing of the past and the present. And then the interbeing of the present and the future is that this moment gives birth to the entire future of the cosmos. According to what we do, how we speak, how we think, how we act in this moment, that determines uh, to some extent the future of the of the entire cosmos. And so the future is also present in this moment. So it's the interbeing of the three times past, present, and future. You know, you look deeply into it, you see the whole of eternity in the present moment. Now we know why we invited him, don't we, Brother Fabio? We do. <laughs> <laughs> right, should we just stop there? <laughs> I think we're done. <laughs> so, Brother Fablin, okay. So there are these two ways of seeing the, our lives, the world, everything. And this podcast is all about the Zen art of living. It's about saying, well, by knowing these, there are two dimensions. By understanding them, is that just going to confuse me mm. or actually is it going to help me? So bringing that sort of those two ideas down to earth in the sense of what that means for someone living their daily life. Mm. How does it help to understand those two dimensions? Right. Well, first of all, I, I think I want to say something, which is that this doesn't, it's kind of not the property of Buddhism in a sense, right? It's not just because we have this teaching of the ultimate and the relative that, that it's, or the ultimate and historic, that this is kind of, that only Buddhism has access to this. I think you can find this in every spiritual tradition it just comes with different names and even I, I, I even encounter scientists who I think are starting to touch this kind of sense of the possibility of consciousness kind of uh, f touching oneness touching this profound connection with with everything and the sense of meaning this sense of deep deep meaning and um yeah, that it's not all for nothing, that it's not all, you know, that we're not living in a kind of big clockwork cosmos that's just kind of mindlessly going through its 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 motions, but that there's something up, something is going on, it means something and it matters what we do, it matters what we say, it matters what we think. And so um, in a sense, I see it as 
it's first of all, there's an aspect of good news, right? Because it means that there is something afoot, you know, there's something going on, there's something deep, there's something mysterious, there's something wonderful that we can all touch in our in our daily lives. And that that's pretty good news because I think, you know, it would be easy in this day and age to to think, you know, the more we know about the world, the more we see about what's happening in the world, the more overwhelming it can feel and the more kind of terrifying and um, and sometimes meaningless it can feel. It can feel like we are, you know, our society's falling apart, the, the planet's falling apart, the environment's falling apart, uh, the economy's falling apart, politics is falling apart, nothing means anything, anything anymore. We don't trust each other. We don't believe what we read in the newspapers. We don't you know, there's this feeling of, um, yeah, things coming apart at the seams a little bit. Um, and so what can this practice bring us? How can we sort of ground it in our daily lives? I think it's it's exactly when we encounter those feelings of um, everything is not okay, you know, or I'm not okay, the world is not okay, I feel disturbed, I feel scared i feel maybe desperate or some aspect of despair or anxiety or stress you know that what is going to happen you know what is what does my future look like what does my children's future look like you know is there a future for us as human beings on the world these are very very scary thoughts and i think they are rising in the collective consciousness people are talking about the possibility of collapse you know of our civilization collapsing and that's kind of normal now to, to just kind of throw that into conversation or see it in the news. Um, before it would have been a pretty fringe thing to say. Now it's fairly ordinary. Um, and that's scary. This is really scary. So uh, knowing all that, knowing, you know, so w w when, we, when we have these feelings, which can be every day, you know, can be frequent, um, the question is wh how do we, uh, what what do we do? How do we respond as practitioners of meditation? And I f just feel incredibly lucky to have met my teacher and to have been given all of these different ways to to touch to to go to go deeper to go in search of the ultimate within myself. Because you know whether you call it the ultimate from the Buddhist point of view, or whether you call it God, or you know, kind of cosmic consciousness or life itself or, you know, the life spirit or, uh, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's, there's this feeling that there's more to, to life. There's more to what's going on and, and, and we have to be able to, to touch it. And when we can touch it, that gives us the feeling of a great, a bigger purpose. We're in touch with our kind of ultimate concern. Like, why are we even getting up in the morning? You know, why do we go through the motions every day? Um, why do we do what we do? Why do we strive to try to understand ourselves more deeply or to love more deeply? Or you know, there has to be a kind of bigger underlying purpose that 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 kind of fills us with um, with energy that that can carry us through all of these daily difficulties that we that we face. Um, so that's kind of the, for me, the part of the why of it, uh, the utility of it, the, the ultimate dimension, you know, saying, oh, you know, you should get in touch with the ultimate dimension. It doesn't mean kind of 
um, spiritual bypassing. It doesn't mean learn to touch these kind of wonderful states of bliss in your sitting meditation, and then you can ignore all of the terrible things that are going on in the world and you'll still feel fine. That is not touching the ultimate. That is, uh, you know, well, that's, yeah, that is spiritual bypassing. So touching the ultimate means that you uh, are able to, yeah, to, to contact this, this sort of deeper level of meaning, of significance, um, of love ultimately in your life and in the, in, you know, in the world. And that nourishes you, gives you energy, gives you peace um, to come back and kind of stay in the game, you know, to, to do the daily things, but with the freshness and the freedom of the ultimate dimension. Thank you, brother. So can, can I just talk a little bit about how it's helped me, actually, which maybe is because cause when, I, when, I, in, when I was working at The Guardian, I interviewed Ty on a few occasions, but on one occasion I, I interviewed him about the uh, historical and the ultimate dimension. And, what I, the, and I found, actually, my limited understanding fundamentally shifted the way I was able to be present for the work I did in, and as you say, to really feel the depth of the grief and pain out in the world, as well as staying happy in myself. And the way I understood it is that sort of, you know, as you exclaim, explain very well, you know, the historical dimension is, you know, me, I'm living this life, I'm feeling these things, I have my sufferings, etc, etc. And the ultimate dimension, my sense of it was that actually, you know, everything, you know, I'm, I'm living in this moment. And so this moment is, feels the most important for me. It's my kids, my family, my friends, my community. And, and so in a sense, I, I'm deep in the wood in, amongst the trees. I, I, I see basically what I perceive out of my own sense. And then that old thing of when you rise above the trees and you get to see uh, that actually all the pathways and, and, and the trees in context. And, and for me, the ultimate dimension helped me to understand that actually everything on the long arc of history, going back to the very beginning of time, going through to uh, far into the future, you know, things always rise and fall. Mm. Things always, um, um, that there's happiness and there's suffering, that, that, that civilizations all through history have come and gone that that there is this deep sense of impermanence but actually that beyond impermanence everything is okay that you know that that if we understand that everything is impermanent everything can be destroyed that in a few billion years the earth will get too close to the sun and itself will be destroyed so we're we we want i want to preserve what's beautiful in this planet but also recognize this planet itself is impermanent and and what that helped me to do was let go of my attachment 
to it being a certain way. Because in this lifetime, what I see and the difference I want to make sort of feels sort of it fills my mind. But actually, when I step back from it, it's saying, I don't actually know what needs to happen. I don't actually know what a, what what would be the best thing for this earth, whether whether humans disappear or whether we flourish, whatever. I, I don't know that. And so by by letting the ultimate take care of itself, I can actually just focus on being here in this moment without a need for it to be a particular way. So 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 what I've been trying to do with brother, and I, I don't know if this makes sense, is is in a sense have see the interplay between that. To see that, yes, I, I want to I want to do everything I can, as Tai would say, to sort of protect this beautiful blue jewel in the in the cosmos. And at the same time, this jewel in the cosmos has its own life, has its own um, its own sort of rises and falls, of which I I don't need to know. So 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 I can be fully present, fully engaged, do everything I can. And also let go of this need for it to be that. And and I think the most difficult thing when I talk to people about it, they say, but but what about all the suffering? They say, yeah, it's all very well you saying that, but actually if, you know, we talk about the end of civilization, you know, or the extinction of of human beings, you know, that is amazing, intense and enormous amount of, of uh, suffering at, at a scale we can't even begin to imagine. And and that's where I think people get a bit stuck, mm. is because they say, oh, it's all very well saying, oh, well, I'll do everything I can, but I let go of the outcome. And people say, but look, there are people suffering now, there are people dying now. How can you almost be so cold, sometimes people say. Right. So I think the key is to understand that touching the ultimate doesn't mean that we become passive or indifferent or, or cold. On the contrary, um, it means that uh, we become more free to actually engage in a more helpful way. If we only concern ourselves with the historical dimension, then there's a big risk that we get into a state of panic, basically, of, of sort of frenetic activity, because it is overwhelming. There is, you know, more than any one individual can can do or can can handle the, the suffering is already immense let alone what may be coming in a decade or two um so if we stay at that level it's just sort of tasks and to-do lists and it's never enough and we can never be enough and we can never do enough and that's that's just very stressful basically that's very stressful and that stress then causes us to behave in a stressful way and maybe we are so panicked by the impending doom that we see coming that we actually bring it on sooner because our actions may contribute to you know spreading panic and fear and 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 doom um if we're not careful so what is the alternative the alternative is not just to sort of go off into some fairyland and you know just hide ourselves in caves and and go into full lotus position and go on for the rest of eternity and everything's fine. It's it's actually just to have a way to be in touch with wonder every day, every moment, to refresh ourselves with um, the sense of mystery, of wonder, of love uh, that is available to us. Um, and 
And yes, also to be at peace with our own death. You know, fundamentally, that's that's a part of it. To have a kind of to be able to touch a non-fear, to be able to see that we are not limited to just this lifespan that we continue in 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 important ways. Um, that gives us non-fear. That not only we continue, but every action continues. Every action resonates sort of throughout time and space in ways that we can't really fathom. And so every action matters. Um, and so there's a sense in which, you know, you could say, well, okay, so human civilization may come to an end. It's important to realize that, to accept that even. That doesn't mean that we, by accepting the possibility of the end of civilization, that we uh, don't do anything about it. It means that we're able to be at peace with the possibility that our civilization will be extinguished, to see that we, and that peace comes because we see our profound interbeing with the earth. So if you see yourself as just human, then the end of civilization is pretty scary, right? Because then that means the end, the end, the end, you know, it's all over, game over. But if you see yourself as the earth, well, the end of civilization is just, it's, yeah, it's, it's tragic and it's, it's not something, you know, trivial, but it's only the end of a, of a part of you. And so much of you continues. Like if we are the earth, well, we will continue. We will continue in other forms, in countless other forms. The earth will regenerate herself. Maybe she takes a hundred million years, you know, to restore the richness of biodiversity that we enjoyed, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. But, but she will she'll be able to do that. And even if this planet is uh, ultimately swallowed, in, you know, engulfed by the sun when it grows into a red dwarf, uh, a red giant, sorry. And then, um, but, but the earth also is only a part of what we are. We are the cosmos. We are, you know, the earth is a flower of the cosmos. And there are many flowers, you know, that, that will bloom elsewhere. And so it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's kind of mystical. It's hard to make it, you know, to, to, to convince ourselves just with, with logic alone, you know, that, that that sense of continuation beyond humanity, beyond even planet Earth, is a meaningful one, is a refuge. But that's why you have to not just talk about it, right? It's not just an idea. It's not enough. You can't convince yourself with logic. You actually have to do it. You have to have a practice that gives you the possibility of touching that experience directly beyond words. And then you get it. And then you feel that piece. It's not that you kind of think your way to it. You actually touch it and and then you're free to, to come back. And like I said before, to stay in the game. And then you see the preciousness of everything we have, the preciousness of everything that still remains of our, of our civilization. And you want to do everything you can to, to save everything that you can. Even if we are in a collapse, you know, situation. Um, doesn't it still matter that we are kind? You know, doesn't it still matter that we that we express love and compassion? I believe it does. I believe that that love and compassion can't be extinguished. They're not extinguished by death or even disaster. Um, and I can't explain to you why I'm so sure of that. Uh, it's 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 beyond 
logic, but you can, I think all of us can feel it deep inside us. And, and sometimes you have to have a way to quiet the noise, you know, in, in your mind. Um, and then it, it, you, you feel that there's something inside of you that just, that is just connected to, uh, there's this powerful force that tends towards love and and beauty and goodness and 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 kindness and it's not really logical in a sense it's it's way beyond you know anything that you could justify by by logic uh it's completely mad in a sense you know it's just totally bonkers um it's not anything that you know let's you know, to give you an example like if you do something kind and nobody knows right does that does that matter that nobody knows? No, it, you, you still have the sense that that kindness is important. Even if nobody else ever sees it or understands it, it's still important. You don't only do it, you know, to get other people's praise or approval or acceptance. It's because there's something intrinsic in us that just wants to help relieve suffering in, in the world. And that, yeah, I think that transcends all kind of explanations and 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 and, and logic. Thank you, brother. That was beautiful, beautifully spoken. And Fatpo, um, I just want to bring you in here because I just want to go a bit deeper into what Fat Lin just said about the difference between intellectually knowing something and touching something. And and you know, I I recognise that. I mean, I'm not a practitioner like both of you. But I, I do know in my own life that through Thai's teachings and interviews and whatever, I did touch that. It, it's not, and, and it's then it is quite hard to explain because actually if you're just thinking about it, then it is spirit, it's still spiritual bypassing because it's so, if you're not in touch with the suffering as well as touching the joy, then, then, then it becomes an exercise of spiritual bypassing so so it's only when you deeply touch it that you're one is able to sort of hold both in the cusp of your your two hands so so brother Fapu, help us take us a bit further on this journey of what it really means to touch this to to know it in a deeper way where it becomes embodied within us I was in the ultimate. Now you're bringing me back to the historical. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, this is a very deep conversation and I'm really enjoying it because uh, everything that has been shared, I've also been contemplating. And one thing that has been coming up for me is that this insight of the historical and the ultimate dimension, it is uh, old, but it is new, but it is also very ancient. Meaning that if I... Been, we're sitting in Thai's hut right here and we're, we're sit around, surrounded by forests. I'm just looking at the trees. And when Brother Fablin spoke about the kindness aspect, I think about the tree. The tree has the deep insight of ultimate and historical because the tree is doing the best it can as a tree to offer itself in the present moment for this environment, this cosmos, this earth. But ultimately, it is also teaching us how life is. When the season changes, it knows how to let go because it, it 
has a deep understanding of continuation. It has a very profound understanding that by being the tree that it is, its its um, transmission of its lifespan is continuous. And for us humans, we're very young. We're a very young species, but we think we're the best, and we think we are the boss. And because of this ignorance, we like to divide and separate and have a lot of um, distinction. And so, this teaching of the historical dimension and the ultimate dimension is to see that we interbe with everything. So, when we talk about our way of being, even though it has a contribution to just the people that are around us, it may be a small family, three people, four people, two people, or it may be just yourself. But you think that you're by yourself, but actually every action that you're live, your your way of life, you're offering it to the to the ultimate dimension. So, practically. I always come back to the practice of the present moment because that is the core teaching of the Buddha and the core teaching of Plum Village. In order to be in touch with the ultimate and the historical, in the historical, I am Brother Fabu. I have my talent. I have my shortcomings. I have my way of speaking. But if I start to remove um, you, Joe, Brother Fablin, Brother Nim Tuong, my teacher, Paz. Uh, my community, I start to lose myself, and I, I remove my parents, I remove my ancestors, I remove my education. Then who are you? So in the in the historical dimension, just by this understanding, you start to already touch the ultimate. So once you see that all of these conditions have come to allow you to be the you that you are. You start to see, oh, my, my eyes are not just mine, my voice is not just mine. So the kind of words I want to say, it can be not just in this, it cannot, uh, it doesn't just have impact in this moment, but it will trickle into the future. And by the historical dimension, we can touch the ultimate. Let's talk about the Buddha, the Buddha, two thousand six hundred years ago. By his understanding of suffering, he embarked on a journey to find a way out of suffering, to help free himself from notions of um, discrimination, notions of right and wrong, good and bad, and to have breakthrough and to touch interbeing and to touch emptiness and to liberate himself, and then now transmit all of this teaching to his. Community, his the students that came to him, and for it to have an impact till now, that is the ultimate. So every word, every action has an impact, because there are some things we cannot put our finger on, because there's a transmission of energy. When Brother Fab Lin spoke about love and compassion, there are people that you meet that somehow you just feel so drawn to them. Right, like what? What is it? Like why? And we can we can put words to it, but sometimes it's maybe it is an energy that they have been cultivating, such as kindness, such as stability, and it just brings you into them. 
such as um, I'll never forget the first time sitting in a Dhamma talk with with Tai. I had no idea who this man was. But the moment he came into the hall and we all stood up to join our palm to greet Tai, just his way of walking. Historically, it's just a walk. But ultimately, it is the cultivation of inner peace, transformation, and insight. So in that particular moment, you get to be in touch with the historical Tai, but you get to be in touch with the ultimate of love, understanding, suffering even, what he went through and how he embodied in this moment. And so that is a teaching for all of us that even in the most difficult situation that uh, you can find yourself in, you can still not lose yourself. You can still meet the chaos, meet the, the war, meet the death, meet the suffering, and still be an energy of love and compassion. And such honor to be able to, to be in his presence um, through so many years with Thai. And so now coming back to the historical, to us sitting here listening, speaking about it, we have to cultivate the practice that he, that the Buddha and Thai and many ancestors, spiritual and blood, as well as uh, land ancestor, have been showing us that the lifespan that we have, even though it is short, but there is the ultimate that helps us see that we're not limited to just this lifespan. So it gives you responsibility. Mindfulness, the energy of awareness, when you practice it and you start to identify um, the suffering that you've gone through, you start to have understanding. And if you have real understanding and you really touch Buddhism, the teachings of the practice, you wouldn't want to make others suffer because ultimately... We are the energy of love and compassion, healing, transformation, also the energy of anger, anxiety, fear. All these emotions are, are in us and in everyone, but ultimately we're also free because we are more than just one emotion. We are more than just one experience. And so we, in our practice of uh, dwelling happily in the present moment is where you meet the ultimate and you don't get lost in the ultimate. Some of us, we may practice and we may feel, get trapped in the, um, the practice of being bliss or um, feeling you're, you're floating in a cloud because you enter a state of, of, of stillness. And that can be a trap itself. But you have to see that that experience there touches your inner peace. I say, ah, I do have inner peace in me. And you can see it as um, an experience that can give you trust in the practice. But you have to let go of that experience in order to experience a new historical and a new ultimate. Because it's a living, for me, the, the, the historical and the ultimate is a living um, dimension. And we, we're, we are in it without knowing or knowing. And, but it's easier to come back to the historical because we feel. It's easier to talk about the feelings, what we're feeling in this very moment. And um, looking at habits, one of the most fundamental practices that we were trained is to call our habits by its name. So if we realize that we're always anxious, we are 
always in a hurry. So the way we walk, the way we move, the way we speak, it carries this energy. And if we don't come to the present moment in the historical dimension to work on it, to recognize it, transform it, ultimately we're going to transmit this energy to our children, to our continuation, our friends, our colleagues. But then let's say you meet someone who is still like a lake and you open yourself and you tap into that person's stillness. It mirrors back to you that, ah, I can also be still like this, like this person. And you start to tune your habit, transform your habit. So in the historical, you're also taking care of the ultimate. And sometimes it's helped to see the ultimate to work in the historical because I want to be a Buddha. I, I want to be liberated. You know, I want to be free. That ultimate um, aspiration allows me in this present moment to have the determination and the energy to see where I will, where I will arrive into the future. But by doing it now and recognizing, I can, I know where I will be because of the present moment. Does that help? Yeah, that's that's immensely helpful. And it, it, right, as you were talking, Brother Fabio, it brought up an old memory of mine, which is um, in my early 30s, I was doing some self-development work. And, um, and I was on a 10-day sort of, in a sense, a, a retreat is one way, not, a, not, in, in, not, not like a Plum Village retreat, but a, an experiential group. And in a sense, every day we were working on stripping out our beliefs our judgments our views and then on day six we hit this place that the facilitators call the terror of nothingness and and it was it was it was experiential since people were chosen to represent something and i was chosen to represent <laughs> the terror of nothingness because that's probably what i was feeling because actually what was going in you know i was probably 32 at the time what was going through my head was well, if I'm not this, and 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 if I'm not this, then actually, who am I? Which, of course, is the deep question we all ask. But actually, it came across as a terror. And and so maybe, Faplin, you just, for Pete, you know, because it's, it's very nice to say, isn't it, that um, you let go of the self and, and you recognize the ultimate and bring that in. But but for some people, that can also generate fear, can't it? That they're saying, well, actually... I feel much more secure that this is me and these are my thoughts and these are my views. And in a sense, that's what we're seeing in the world, that in, in difficult times, a lot of people actually, rather than expand into a new space, shrink deeper into an old space and actually say, well, no, I'm just going to actually stick with the people I know and they're my tribe and actually everyone else is wrong and we see all this division and, and what have you. So, so I, I don't quite know what my question is, but it, it's, it's sort of saying how... Can we work with this in a way that it doesn't generate fear and retraction, but more sort of openness? Mm, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so I think it's a question of what is our true security? Because, of course, we can, uh, I mean, think, and we do instinctively in times of danger, we kind of do collapse back onto our 
small selves onto our immediate concerns. Uh, can I just look after number one or look after my family, look after their immediate security? Do we have enough? Um, you know, it's a little bit like the bunker mentality, which we're starting to see amongst some billionaires these days. They're kind of like, you know, prepping, just saying, well, as, as long as I have enough money, land, you know, facilities, resources, food, whatever, guards, I don't know, I, and I have a big tract in of land in New Zealand and I can build a big enough bunker, then I'll be fine, you know, and I'll be able to look after my family or the people I invite to my bunker. Um, but I don't think, you know, I think if you look a little deeper, it's easy to see that there's there's no security in that because we still die. You know, you can insulate yourself as much as you like, but you're going to die. <laughs> Sorry, that's bad, a, bad news. That's the reality. <laughs> that's the game of yeah. being humans. <laughs> Not only are you going to die, but you before you die, you're going to get sick. You're going to get old. You're going to be infirm. You're going to have physical pain. Uh, you're going to have... And I mean, imagine you are in a collapse scenario and you've got your beautiful bunker and, you know, you've assured your the little island of security for you and your people. But can you really have peace if you've abandoned the rest of humanity? You know, what, what kind of happiness is that? What kind of security is that? I, I just don't believe that anybody in that situation could for a moment feel well. It would feel horrendous. Just, it would be horror, utter horror. So there's no security there. There's no security. And so, you know, of course, that's an extreme example, you know, and, and we can say, yeah, but, you know, most people are not building bunkers. They're just trying to get through their daily life and, and trying to pay the bills and make ends meet. And and of course that we, we, we seek for, some semblance of security or stability in our in our daily lives as well. Um, but I think again, it's not hard to see in that scenario too. In any scenario, we're well, we're all subject to old age, sickness, death, to be to separation, to pain, um, and so we have to ask ourselves: well, Where is my where is my refuge? You know, am I looking for a small? A little moment of peace, which will then be snatched away, or or am I going for the ultimate uh, peace and and freedom? And I know which one I'm going for. Um, you know, and and the wonderful thing is, you don't have to wait. Like it's actually available now, and it's true. There is, uh, I think, in meditation practice, when we really start to still our minds. I mean, you can just do it by following your breath, you know, you just, I mean, the, the very basic teaching actually goes all the way. It's, it's the whole thing. You just sit in stillness and you start to follow your breath. And if you are sufficiently determined or maybe stubborn and you manage to stick with the sensations of the breath, the whole of the in-breath, the whole of the out-breath, and every time your mind gets pulled away or you know goes into thinking and distraction and fantasizing or you know worrying or regretting or whatever it happens to to do you gently bring it back over and over and over again until if you're lucky maybe it becomes completely still and you reach a kind of effortless concentration where your mind just stays there and if you as if you continue there's a point 
which I find that there is a kind of fear that comes up because the the fear is to abandon our inner monologue. The, the part of us that we kind of tend to unconsciously identify with is the little voice, the, the, the me, the little, you know, the nonstop thinking radio that's narrating our experience to ourselves and saying, are we good? Or did I like that? Did I not like that? Do I like him? Or did I like that situation? Did I say the right thing or the wrong thing? Did I impress them? Did I disappoint myself? Did I realize my potential? Am I good enough? Ah, How do you, you know. know what I'm thinking about that? <laughs> <laughs> That, that, that's what we call the non-stop radio thinking. Yes. Yeah. So I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking it too. <laughs> it's very natural. It's just, it's part of the human condition. There's part of us which is anxious. It's part of us which worries about our social standing. How, you know, are we liked? Uh, are we good enough? Are we, you know, do we have what we want? Do we want something else? It's always pushing us out of stillness into getting something else, getting some other experience. I want a piece of chocolate. No, I no, actually I don't. No, I want a cup of tea. No, I want to stand up. No, I want to sit down. No, I want to lie down. No, I want to turn on the TV. No, I want to go to sleep. I want to read a book. Or, you know, it's like always something else. I want a diploma. I want a, a car. I want to, you know, it's like I want, I want, I want this, 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 this now, whatever this happens to be, generally feels unsatisfactory in some way. And so the tendency is when you actually touch that unsatisfactory experience to think that to get out of it, you have to have something other than this, something else, whether it's, you know, uh, a, a partner, uh, you know, a, a job, uh, a career, an achievement, an accomplishment, or a sense pleasure of some kind or another, just something else, not this. So that's very, very normal. And that little voice is always telling us what the next thing to get, to grasp at is. And we're very identified with it. We have a tendency to think, that's who I am. That's me. And in meditation, if we are able to, to still that sufficiently and to really settle into concentration, this is mindfulness of the breath becoming concentration, that voice starts to slow down, it, the volume goes down, and maybe it starts to stop from time to time. There's spaces, and it's slightly terrifying. Because it's like, well, if I'm not that, then what, what am I? Can I actually let go of that? It's a kind of death. It's a kind of... It's, it's, it should be slightly terrifying. You know, so you asked me, like, how can you you know, touch the ultimate without it being terrifying. Well, I'm saying maybe you can't, you know, maybe there is a little moment of, it's a little bit terrifying, but if you can go through that and sink into it even deeper, what you find is this vast oceanic peace and joy and wonder that, because actually that little voice is a cage. It's a, it's a trap. It's very narrow. And it's very stressful, you know. So the the whole point is that we we are trying to, we're always trying to be, you know. Who do you want to be? I want to be someone, you know. I want to be the best. I want to be myself, you know. We're always trying to trying to be, which means we have to kind of 
define ourselves against everything else. We have to say what we are, what's special about us, what's unique about us. We, we're trying to consolidate being, but it's very stressful because it's not the truth, right? So it's not that you have to sort of let go of self or dissolve self or something like that because it was never there in the first place. It isn't there. It's, a, it's an illusion. So it's actually just relaxing and relaxing and relaxing into what is already the case, which is our interbeing, our interconnectedness, which is a much less stressful, fearful, anxious place to be because this is it. It's already everything. We are already what we want to become. You know, we're already free. We're already in touch with the ultimate. You know, that that's the, the weirdest part is this kind of very famous statement, you know, of a Zen master whose student asked him, well, how do I, you know, how do, where do I go to find uh, no birth and no death? And he says, you find no birth and no death in birth and death. So where do I go to touch the ultimate? The historical. You touch the historical deeply enough, it already is the ultimate. It's actually the same thing. Uh, it's just our, our way of looking needs to open up a little bit. We need to relax the part of our mind that, that reifies things, that cuts reality into little pieces, into names, and, and that names everything. Tai once said something at the end of a Dharma talk that has always stayed with me. And it was just a throwaway line, but I think it's, for me, one of the most profound things he ever said. And that one line is still resonating in me. And Listeners, go, you're going to get to hear it. Wait, 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 it's coming, it's coming. See, now it's going to resonate further, maybe. So he, from the beginning of the talk, he had held up a leaf. He had an autumn leaf and he showed us the leaf and he said, look at this leaf. Is this leaf inside of you or outside of you? And, you know, and some people put up their hands. It's inside of me. They're thinking that they're very deep. And then Ty just kind of smiles. And, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, hmm, yes, very difficult. Mm. You know, it doesn't give the answer. Um, and, uh, and then at the end, I mean, there's the whole Dharma talk, so I kind of can't really do it justice, but... He basically said, I think this is original sin. Right? So the concept of original sin in Christianity is sort of like something's wrong with us. Something is profoundly wrong with us since we left the Garden of Eden. And, and what is that? What was the mistake? You know, what went wrong? And I said, this is the mistake. And he made this gesture of kind of like a pair of scissors to cut out this leaf and say leaf. To call it a leaf is original sin. To separate it from the rest of reality and to say that it is itself a thing, a separate thing. And the problem with our consciousness being so dominated by language, this is why we have to stop that non-stop thinking, chattering voice, because when, we, when our consciousness only happens is only mediated by language. When we use language to uh, understand the world, then we start to 
believe the the separateness of things because because the words are separate. Things have separate names. Leaf is not table. Table is not chair. You know, egg is not chicken. So they seem to be separate because they have different names. And if we are perceiving the world through language only, then we start to think those separations are real. And that gives rise to so much suffering, stress and confusion because it includes us. We think we, humans, are different. You know, separate, cut off, maybe even lonely. You know, we have species loneliness now. You know, like we're you know, or superiority. It's also stressful. You know, we're, we're better than all the rest. You know, we're, we're the master race, you know. That's also stressful and lonely. But it's just an artifact of language and of the way language dominates our perception. So if we can, that's why we like to, uh, you know, uh, to, to practice meditation, Um uh, and you know, Zen is all about transcending language. It's difficult. You have to be quite stubborn. You have to be quite determined. You know, say say you're doing walking meditation. You know, maybe for the first twenty minutes, you're just thinking. Your mind is spinning. You know, and you keep bringing your attention back. Okay, yeah, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to breathe in with my you know two steps and breathe out with three steps and. And then you start wondering what's for lunch, and then you come back, and like, okay, you know, uh, uh, and then you start thinking about the meeting you have to go to later this afternoon, and you know, then you start thinking about the podcast, and you know, <laughs> and, but you, you're stubborn, right? You keep coming back, and you keep coming back because you won't settle for less than the ultimate, and that's my recommendation to you all as listeners: don't settle, don't settle for less than the ultimate dimension. Tai gave us the keys. Mm. He showed us exactly what we have to do. And it's that simple. You just go for a walk in the woods or in the park or in your garden or in your yard, even in your living room, and you are stubborn. And you, you keep bringing your mind back to the sensation of your foot touching the earth with infinite gentleness, the sensation of your breath, the feeling of your weight on Mother Earth, and you're relentless. You know, and every time your mind starts chattering, you go, hi, I know you're there, thank you, you're very sweet, but not now. Right now, I'm doing walking meditation, and you just come back, and you come back, and you come back, and gradually, that, the, you know, the, the mind is like, a, it's like a fan, you know, it's like, when you turn it off, when you press the button, it keeps spinning. It's not going to stop immediately. So that's why you have to be a little bit stubborn, you have to, you have to be patient enough to keep coming back to the practice of walking or breathing, lying, relaxing, whatever practice you're doing, you keep coming back until your mind starts to slow down and even stop. And then you can see the truth directly for yourself. You don't need to take anybody's word for it. You don't, you know, touching the ultimate is not a matter of listening to somebody saying, oh, you know, it's all wonderful, everything's connected. That's not going to do it for you. Mm -mm. It's not, it's not going to work. You can't read it in a book. Nobody can give it to you. But you can touch it yourself if you have the courage, the determination, the stubbornness and the patience, uh, the relentlessness to stop your chattering 
mind and find out what's really there when you do that. So, thank you, Brother Feblin. Uh, when um, our wonderful producer, Clay, um, just puts the podcast together, he normally just uh, puts some natural sounds in. I thought maybe after hearing all that, we should. the rain has just started here. We haven't had rain for... A while. A long while. It's been very dry. And there's a... I've been waiting for this moment to hear the rain. So maybe we should just take a moment and just listen to the rain. Well, that means, Clay, a little bit less work for you to do on this episode. Um, I want to come back to practicality soon with you, Faplin, but before that, Fapo, I just wanted to come to you and ask you a bit about, you know, you were Ty's attendant for 17 years, so you spent lots of time with him. And, um, and I'm just wondering if you can tell our listeners sort of how you experienced tie in the sense of the ultimate and the historical bringing those two together and how, how you feel that showed up in his life because um because a lot of people who are listening will well most people may have not have met tie they may have just heard um a, a dharma talk but you saw him all day every day for for many years in in different contexts i'm just wondering how you felt he embodied those mm. I think I can say Tai was very free and he wasn't caught in um, the worries of success, failure, um, happiness, suffering. And he knew, he knew how to accept everything as they manifest and be there fully for every situation. And um, that is true presence. And because when you see it for, for the situation as it is, you know what to do and what not to do. A lot of times we, we see a situation and then our perceptions, our mind, our judgment comes in and draws up a, a brand new picture rather than what is actually there. And so with that insight uh, and that cultivation of presence and ability to look at it and recognize it for what it is, he's very intentional with every action. And I think that was one of the greatest blessings to just be in his way of living. Like everything is so intentional. Nothing is wasted. You know, one of Tai's, um, I, I, I call it superpower, was just knowing how to let go. Like, he know how, how valuable each minute, each moment was. And he, he arrives at the right moment, arrives at the right time. And when he's there, he's fully there. And all of us who are living in our heads as his students, when he arrives, we arrive. And 
that presence is because he sees that in the here and now, when he's with his students, his bodily action is a teaching, is a transmission, which now we have inherited, and now we can transmit to our own practice as well as transmit to everyone we meet who is willing and open to learn. And so that true presence and that freedom that Tai was able to um, to be, like I never felt like he wanted to be anything less than he is and anything more than he is. And because of that, we felt his warmth and we felt his um, ability to see us as we are. I think um, I can speak for many um, of, his, of his monastic students, and I'm sure even lay students who had a chance to be with him. When he looks at you, you get scared. You look down because your mind starts to create perceptions of what Tai seeing in you. But maybe Tai is just seeing you for who you are. And I remember every time Tai would look at me, like my first reaction is like, look down. And because his, his presence and his freedom was so, so real that it challenges me, am I here? And because I'm not here, I can't look. And so I, I, I like to, I like to uh, say that his presence and his actions were very intentional but very effortlessly because it's been cultivated for many years. And for us who are babies in, in, in the practice, we know that as we continue to develop our sitting, develop our listening, develop our mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of action, mindfulness of speech, mindfulness of happiness, mindfulness of suffering, our understanding will become more natural. Our awareness becomes effortlessly. So, you know, for me, when I see Tai walk, that's mindfulness. It's, it's like there's no effort because the, pra- the walk is the practice. So for, for us, I, I think we, we, we still divide spirituality and normal life. Like I don't have enough time to practice. But for Tai, when you walk, that's the practice. You, you don't say, I have to be in a retreat. I have to have time. Because time is also a concept that we put language to. But if you just walk and you're present, that is, that is, medi- that is, that is you in the historical and the ultimate. And so I, um, I never forget um, his way of drinking tea. Is, is a very, it's a style I think we all inherited, which is like holding the cup in two hands and then gently um, smelling the fragrance of the tea and then sipping it. And a small cup of tea, Tai can take a good 30 minutes to enjoy. And in that very practice of drinking the cup of tea, which I believe to Tai is just a normal act, but because we're like, oh, that's such a Zen moment. <laughs> we're, 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 you know, I know Tai is so in touch with the clouds, the conditions for um, the the plant of 
of the tea to be um, cultivated from the high mountains, the sun, the rain, the gardener, all of the effort. So when you have that cup of tea in your two hands, you're in gratitude. And that is the ultimate because you don't take this, this present moment for granted. And even if you die tomorrow, you've enjoyed a cup of tea in the here and now. And if you can be in touch with that, then you know that you have the capacity to be in the present moment, which is in the ultimate. I Sometimes it pushes us to, to, um, to a very harsh situation for us to realize the simplicity of life and the beauty of life. In Thay's Dhamma talk, he used to explain to us um, a story that he read, which is like a prisoner who was uh, about to be executed. But uh, in his days in, in the prison, he was able to touch the ultimate. And every time he looked at the window and he see the blue sky, he sees the sun, the sunshine, he feels so alive. He feels that he's living every moment the deepest that he can. And he is already beginning anew. And so when the moment came and uh, they, they offered him a priest uh, to do some prayer, and he said, no, I don't need it. Because for him, he's already free. He's already recognized all his actions. And in this present moment, the blue sky, the universe, him, life is so precious. So I don't want to waste my time with someone who is praying for me, but maybe it's not as free as I am. And so then that person becomes ultimately free. And life and death is a game of hide and seek, like we, we touch. So even if we're not here, we are still here. Can I tell yeah, a story? Of course. Um, because that really reminded me of uh, uh, a situation with Thai. Uh, I think it was in 2004 or 2005. I, I wasn't a monk yet, and I was here for a retreat. And uh, Thai gave a Dhamma talk. And suddenly, about halfway through the talk, he said, Okay, any questions? And uh, it was Q&A time. So he, in those days, he didn't even have a lapel mic or, a, you know, like, a, like one of those TED mics. It was just a handheld microphone. And um, so he started, so I, yeah, I, I put up my hand immediately. I was sitting on the front row and I was very excited and I thought I had a great question. And, you know, this is my moment to ask the Zen master. And um, then Tai started walking towards me with the microphone. But because it's Thai and because of, like you were saying, this deep cultivation, you know, the only way he walks is in walking meditation. So he's walking very slowly. And he must have been, I don't know, five or six meters away across the hall and he starts walking towards me. And when he's maybe two or three meters away, I kind of reach forward uh, to get the microphone. And, and usually what happens when you do that is the other person reciprocates and they kind of lean forward so you can get it that half second more quickly, you know, because that's so important. And uh, what was what happened, of course, I sort of lean forward and lunge to get the microphone and Tai does nothing. He just continues to walk at exactly the same speed and I'm just left hanging. <laughs> I basically just kind of like, kind of lunging into space. I'm just completely like left in the splash of my own kind of, you know, 
falling forward into the future and trying to, like I was saying before, it's like you're trying to get, you're not, basically, because in that moment, although I might have thought, you know, I'm in Plum Village, I'm meditating, I've just listened to a Dhamma talk, I might have had the impression that I was in the present moment. But suddenly what I what I then got to see was that I was still leaning into this moment isn't good enough. I want the microphone. I got to ask my question. It'll be better when I get the microphone. Then I'll be able to answer my question. Then I'll be happy. But, I'm, but there's some kind of fundamental discomfort in this moment that is pushing me. And so it's really... I. What was extraordinary was that Tai was like a mirror. Like he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to decide, okay, I'm going to give this guy a, a Zen lesson. You know, it was just totally effortless, exactly as you were saying. He he didn't have to suddenly, you know, think I'm going to respond in some profound way and, and teach him something. No, he was just completely himself. He remained totally solid in the present moment, mm. taking one step, taking another step, free, like you were saying. So he just had this incredible freedom that he wasn't touched by my craving for, I want this to get this bit of candy a little bit sooner than, than <laughs> otherwise. You know, He wasn't touched by that. He was still himself, still free. And it wasn't unkind either. You know, I felt stupid, but that's, you know, I have my own self-judgment. I don't, you know, and Ty was just looking at me with these big eyes, just kind of seeing the mess I was, <laughs> but without any kind of unkindness, just very loving and very like, okay, it's okay. You'll, you'll understand, you'll learn, you know, but it was kind of like this mirror effect. So I suddenly got to, to, to see my mind. It's like in that millisecond, I saw all these layers of, kind of craving in a sense of just like pushing me wanting something else lunging into the future not being quite satisfied not really being at peace not really being comfortable in my own skin you know not being able just to sit there and be free and be satisfied and just go actually this is enough i don't need anything else the microphone will come but i'm already fine so i wasn't so i suddenly got to see how even though I thought I was in the present moment, I wasn't in the present moment. I was I was like in the next half second, still leaning into the future. And then of course, you know, Tai you know, takes his peaceful steps and hands me the microphone and everything's fine. But in I got this whole kind of like teaching in two seconds. My whole mind just, just kind of went, wow, okay, that's what mindfulness is. That's what being in the present moment is. Wow. You know, and I still got to ask my question, which was fine. And Ty gave me an amazing answer, which was great. But but the teaching was in the that silent interaction. And how could Ty do that? It's because he had been cultivating that his entire life. So he was rock solid. You know, so when I was lunging, he he didn't do that classic mirroring. He was just immovable. So so what I hear from both of you is that if we are able to integrate these two dimensions in a meaningful way where we really feel it then we are of great use in this world yes <laughs> because i i know ty talks about um you know in a boat that's 
in danger of sinking and everyone panics, um, the ship is going to sink. But if even if there's one person who, as you say, is rock solid sitting in that boat, who's calm and is able to to express that calmness through the embodiment of it, then it gives permission for other people to come back to themselves and realise actually not to panic, which is, in a sense, how we started this conversation. So, mm. so what I hear you saying is actually the more that we as individuals are able to to embody this, to understand it, then actually at the most important time of this, in this moment of uh, danger to living beings that we can be of most use because we've done that and uh, and it also as you were talking it, it brought to mind that um you know one of the times i interviewed tai you know he was and this was what 13 14 probably 14 years ago he was talking about civilizational collapse mm. and um and i hadn't really you know i i, I hadn't really heard anyone else talk about the collapse of the civilization you know i'd heard people talk about oh well it's going to be a difficult time etc and um but he said it with calmness yeah. mm. he understood it with calmness he understood that actually the collapse of civilization was a choice and and our behavior and our, our consciousness and whether we had a collective awakening would determine what where it would be but and it's not that Ty was hugely compassionate. He would absolutely understand. He absolutely understood that what it meant for collapse to happen, all the suffering, and he was able to be at peace in that moment. And, and and as I'm thinking about it, I think that was probably quite an important moment for me, because actually, in all the work I've done on climate change, etc., I think that that understanding did help me to um, to be more at peace. Did it help me to see things in a much broader context it has helped me to be there for other people in a way that helps them to relax to be at ease to find some joy so um so actually that this is really <laughs> this is really helpful to hear these stories because it's about um it's recognize actually that we're not looking for Ty to provide the answers but actually he's just showing us a path that mm. we can we can also um follow but um i just wanted to get practical again mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um which is, we've talked about self, we've talked about lifespan, but I just want to come back to this because one of the, one of the things I learned from Ty was sometimes the importance of repetition. That you, Just because you've said it in journalism, if we'd said something once, you would never say it again in the same article. You know, it's like you, you never use the same word twice. Um, and that was in a sense a rule that, or a habit that was stuck in me. And, and Ty had this habit of saying things sometimes many times in the same talk. And I think, well, why is he doing that? And it's, of course, because we don't get it the first time. So I just want to do something very simple and practical, Brother Fatlin, which is, I know in Buddhism, one of the things that helps us to understand uh, the movement from the historical into the ultimate dimension is what are called four notions. There is the Let notion. It, letting go of Let, those four notions. Letting go, yes. yes. <laughs> can, can, we, can we edit this out? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my voice. Um, is letting go of four notions. One yeah. is of self. Mm. One is of human. One is of living being. And one is of lifespan. So we sort of, we covered, we, we jumped around and we covered those in a bit, but I just wonder, Brother Hoplin, before we end this um, recording, is just because I think it's quite useful to go through those four, just to take us through those four and 
how those can help us to move out of this sense of I am this and only this. Yes. So I think we've already seen a few ways, you know, in the conversation of kind of resting in the ultimate. And that can be just, you know, you sit on your cushion and you follow your breath and you quiet your mind and and you find real deep inner silence and you just, boom, there you are. You know, you see it for yourself. But that, yeah, can be quite challenging. And it's actually very useful to understand what are the kind of habits of thought and perception that um, prevent us from seeing reality as it is. And, uh, you know, the Buddhist masters were very, very good at identifying the traps of thought um, that, that prevent us from seeing things as they really are. Because the whole point is that the historical is the ultimate. It's right there, like right in front of our nose. You know, we don't need to go anywhere. We don't need to, you know, be on top of the Himalayas to see the ultimate dimension. It's right there, glaring us in the face, in fact. Um, but somehow we have these habits of thought that just trap us in a, a kind of more narrow type of thinking. So uh, these four notions are um, uh, come up in the Diamond Sutra, which Tai called the earliest text on deep ecology, which is really wonderful. Um, we don't know exactly when it was written, but probably sometime in the second or third century, uh, I think, in the, in northern India. It's, it's an early Mahayana text, and um, and then it was um, it became one of the I think the earliest printed document that we have, they had these Chinese woodblocks that they would carve and then print and uh, paper. And there's, there's a copy of it in the British Museum in London. You can go and see it. And we went to see it with Tai, which was really wonderful. You could ask why, what it's doing in the British Museum. <clears throat> but anyway, there it is. Uh, um, yeah, so in that very, very ancient text, is this very, very helpful piece of guidance for our practice and for our thinking, which says, okay, if you can remove these four notions, then you can start, you have a chance, you know, to see the ultimate, to see reality as it is. So um, that all sounds very nice, you know, okay, let's remove the notion of self, let's remove the notion of human being, um, of living being, of lifespan, great. But then the question is, how? Because actually those notions are quite sticky. They're, they're really, you know, we're quite convinced that we are actually, that we exist, you know, that we are a separate self. And we have lots of ways to prove it. You say, well, look, I have an identity card, I have a passport, I have a driver's license, I have a birth certificate, I have a name, I have, uh, you know, talents and weaknesses, I have my character, my identity, I have, you know, the things I know. And, you know, it's like, there's so much evidence to say, well, I exist and I'm me and I'm unique and I'm special. Um, and uh, so, so how do we start to kind of unpick that? Um, and I think there's lots and lots of ways. Um, you know, one could be as simple as, uh, like Taifat Pu was saying before, drinking a cup of tea. When you pour the tea in your cup or your mug, 
you might think, well, I'm me and the tea is over there, right? And then you start drinking the tea. And at what point does the tea become you? And this is some, there's some sort of, like we know we're, we're 70% water or probably more than 70% water. We know that water, some of that is going to um, be taken up by our cells. You know, uh, it's going to change us. It's going to become part of us. So there's a sense in which we're not, our boundary, that which we usually put at our skin, you know, I say like, this is the edge of me, is not really, you know, the closer you look at it, the more it just dissolves. There is no boundary like that's just physically right you 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 breathe you know so actually if you want to it's like a child you know drawing an outline around something or saying everything inside of this line is me and everything outside of it is not me but where do you draw that line is it is it your skin or do you have to include a little bit of air you know so you can breathe okay so let's make the boundary a little bit bigger let's include the room you know but actually well i I, I need a bit more than the room because I need food. Okay, so I, let's have a farm, you know, so we'll add a farm. And then, well, the farm needs the clouds. And okay, so now let's add the sky. And well, the, you know, the clouds and uh, needs the sun, uh, you know, to evaporate the water from the sea for there to be rain. So, okay, so we throw in the sun. Oh, we've got a lot of space we suddenly thrown in. We've got a whole planet there. And so before you know it, you've got a whole cosmos. You know, so where's the edge? Where are you? Where, you know, where can you... Use your pair of scissors to cut yourself out and say, this is me and everything else is not me. You actually can't. So it's really worth meditating a little bit on that and, and, and doing your own investigation to find out, like, am I bounded? Do I have an edge in space? Also in time. You know, like Taifat who was saying before, we are also part of a stream of transmission from our ancestors. You know, we look into our habits of of speech, of feeling and thinking, where we find everyone else. You know, we find, you know, our, our blood ancestors, but also our friends, our education, our culture. It's all part of us. It's all in us. You can't, we can't separate ourselves from that. And we continue into the future through our actions of body, speech, and mind that resonate outwards, that touch others, that connect us with others um so there's no edge either in space or in time so that notion just sort of crumbles the more carefully you look at it the more it falls apart and then you go to a human being and you say well hang on come on don't be silly like clearly there are human beings look they're all over the place they're you know human beings everywhere crawling around all over the place in their cars and wearing their funny clothes and building their boxes and you know living in them and humans everywhere so why does the buddha say or the you know the ancient masters say there's no human beings well because they had this profound insight that there's no human being without everything else we actually know now that we are a community you know we you just look into your intestinal flora and you find all kinds of non-human cells there are more non-human cells than human cells in our in our body that's just you know that's basic science it's it's we wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this um kind of symbiosis between us and all these different bacterial species that are part of us we wouldn't be able to digest food uh we wouldn't exist without the trees so in the sense like you know we think we're so special but without trees and plankton producing oxygen we wouldn't 
we wouldn't be here. So are they, are we really us? Are we really human or are we also the more than human world? And that, you know, why, like, this isn't just an intellectual exercise. This is actually a medicine for our suffering and especially for the suffering of our times because it's partly this notion that human beings are so special um, that that gives us the impression that we can sort of use the earth, mm. that we can extract, that we can, you know, utilize or and kill, you know, that we can kill other beings for our own survival. It gives us permission because we think we're the best. You know, we think we, we're a part. You know, we've spent so much of the last few hundred years sort of trying to convince ourselves of everything that's special about humanity and and science you know just keeps pushing at the edges of that we keep finding that actually no all of these things that we thought are unique to human consciousness well actually it's shared by the chimpanzees and maybe the parrots and maybe even the magpies and you know it kind of goes wider and wider and now it's like squids and lobsters and even bumblebees now have feelings apparently you know so we've been trying to tell ourselves that we are special that we have um feelings that we suffer that we have joy and that no 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 other animals do because that's very convenient it's very convenient if that's the case then that means that we can kill them and not feel any moral uh compunction because well they don't have feelings you know, they just have instinct you know that's what science has been trying to tell us anybody who has a dog or a cat knows like well the dog or the cat is a is a very emotional being they mm. you know they can be happy they can be sad they can be angry uh they can be lonely they can be anxious we know that it's you know and so if a cat can why can't a sheep or a pig a, a pig cow. is probably much more intelligent mm. you know or, or a cow and so I, we we have to start letting that in and and realizing you know maybe now you know they're even telling us that forests have a kind of intelligence with their mycelial networks you know that there's a kind of underground brain, you know, that's that seems to be communicating, exchanging nutrients, passing, you know, stuff from even between different species. Um, maybe they're more intelligent than we are. Maybe they they have more wisdom than we do. You know, maybe we need to start paying attention and actually listening and stop thinking we're so special. So that's all different kind of angles on this question of you know, is there really such a thing as a human being separate from the rest? And I think it's very clear, really, that there that there isn't. And when we think that there is, we suffer and we cause suffering. We do harm to the earth. Same thing with living beings. With, when, when, with the notion of living being, we have a tendency to discriminate between the living and the non-living. And so we might think, well, okay, fine. So let's, we have to look after the cows and the trees and the fish and da, 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 da. but the rocks you know they don't they don't feel anything it's just rock right it's dead so inanimate we can scrape it mm. up and dig it and you know extract it and it doesn't matter it doesn't feel anything but there's this you know this sutra is inviting us to to look a little deeper and to ask ourselves well are we sure mm. are we really sure that this stuff that we call uh, inert matter, inanimate matter, is it really so inanimate? Is it really so inert? If you ask any physicist to look into, you know, an atom or a subatomic particle, well, they don't seem to be 
inert at all. They're very dynamic. They're fizzing in and out of existence in this sort of weird quantum foam. They seem to be very active. I mean, maybe most physicists wouldn't be comfortable saying that they have intelligence, but but certainly the word inert doesn't seem to you know doesn't seem to stick anymore you know um and also you know with the eyes of interbeing we see well well that 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 world of of matter what we call matter is also part of us we can't exist without it like the weight that you feel now in your bones in your contact with the chair that you're sitting on or the ground under your feet or you know wherever you happen to be that's the presence of an entire planet in your life. Like it's sitting there, it's right there. You can't say that you exist independently of it. You wouldn't feel like you do. The, you know, we wouldn't be experiencing the sensation of weight if there wasn't a planet sitting there. It's, it's, it's part of us. So like what we call living or animate already includes the so-called inanimate world. Uh, you know, if if we didn't have the moon orbiting the earth, we wouldn't have tides and maybe life would never have evolved on this planet mm. or not in the way that it has. And do you think the moon is dead? No, but it's part of life. So it's a big, it's a big, are you sure? It's a big, like, let's re-examine our, our certainty. And our, we have a kind of pride that goes along with, well, I know, you know, I know what I know and, you know, that's all I need to know, and it's all fine. A human's a human, and a you know, a rock's a rock. You know, mm. <laughs> Buddhism is kind of going, well, you know, let's look mm. again, mm. check mm. again, and then lifespan. Well, we've already touched on it a little bit, but it's this, you know, we're also very sure that we are born, and then we die, and that's that. You know, it's very clear: birth certificate, death certificate. What's in between is life. Before is I don't know what. You don't exist. Afterwards, don't exist. Um, but you know, like when we look at Thai, for example, Thai's life, it's, it's just impossible to say that he's gone mm. in a sense. Like it's so clear how he continues in so many ways in everybody he's touched in all of his books, in all of his talks, in us, you know, through his nonverbal actions as well, through his silent teaching, he's transmitted something that continues so what what was he was he just that body that that man or was he already something much bigger than 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 what we can name and point at and you know give an identity to was he already you know more than just that that body um was you know it's like we participate in the lifespan of the planet we participate in the lifespan of the cosmos of stars of galaxies their lifespan is our lifespan we're not limited to 80 years you know we were you know it's it's like the 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 birth and death of suns of supernovae is in our bones like the calcium in our bones they think can only have been created in in supernovae so it's like well was that death or was that birth that star exploding you know is it 
you know, it's, it's, it's part of me. So I didn't start when I was born. I was already in my mother's womb. You know, mm. I was already in, in fact, in my grandmother's womb, you know, as, a, as an egg, you know, <laughs> my mother's, you know, my mother was already an egg in my grandmother and, and she and her mother before her. And, you know, it's like this uninterrupted chain that we, that we participate in. We, we can use these, it seems to be kind of, little, maybe sometimes it seems like a bit of an intellectual exercise, kind of re removing notions and da da da, but the, the, we always have to ask ourselves and kind of remember, like, what does this have to do with my suffering or my happiness? Like, there's no point in doing any of this unless it actually frees us, unless it allows us to touch some feeling of greater depth and significance and meaning love purpose freedom like if it's if it's just a kind of dry intellectual exercise then you know that's not what the buddha or the ancient masters or thai intended they they offered us these tools because when we can touch the ultimate dimension and this is what you were saying before it shines the ultimate shines in the historical. It's a light. You know, somebody like Tai, who was dwelling constantly in the ultimate dimension and yet very active in the historical, was this like this light it is shining because he's free. And that freedom creates more freedom in the world. So it has like the ultimate makes it, it kind of transforms the historical mm. you know when when you when you touch it when you have that freedom and joy it's it's infectious mm. it communicates it it lights up the room you know it lights up other people's hearts you know i i, I those moments looking into ty's eyes it's like they changed me forever you know that like getting a little taste of ty's freedom kind of gave me that taste and so I can remember it and so I know how to touch it again. Um, and then maybe I have a chance, you know, eventually mm -hmm. to transmit a little bit of that that flavor to others. So it mm -hmm. goes on, it, it it transforms the world. And mm -hmm. And we want to touch the ultimate, not to escape, but because we want to do everything we can to transform the historical dimension, to make it more a more beautiful place, a more loving place, mm. um, a place where there's less stress and anxiety. So there's a reason to do all this, you know, because it it means that, you know, when we show up for a conference or we show up at work or or we just sit with our partner, we're different and and we communicate something different and, and we, uh, 
we bring a little bit more depth and wonder to the world around us. And I think everybody's hungry for that. It, it, and it, it makes a difference to how we address problems. I could, you know, I really think of Thai, we've seen Thai go through so many difficult mm, moments, mm. real moments of challenge, you know, mm. when the monastery in Vietnam was mm. disbanded, mm. Um, you know, there were crowds of thugs surrounding, you know, the, the monastery and Thais in France, 400 of his students are in Vietnam. He can't do anything. They're physically in danger. And we were with Thai at the time and, and to see his way of responding to that was such a powerful lesson because he, um, he could remain free and um, he could continue to uh, yeah, his, his freedom changed the way of responding so his way of responding is always surprising so i would be there thinking like okay what do we do either we have to kind of like you know we have to write a letter or we have to do this. it was always kind of like an a and b it's like do we do this or do we that do we do that but because ty's free he's always surprising he's always unexpected he always comes out with something you couldn't see it coming you would have some other response you know and and that's his ultimate dimension that he's free from thinking it's like this or it's like that, these very kind of narrow constraints of these are the options and, and we have to pick, you know. Mm. And and because, yeah, Tai is touching this deeper reality, he's not caught by any of that. And so he can find solutions that nobody expects. And I think that's what we need as well with the climate crisis. That's what we need with all the crises that we face. We need many, many, many people like that who have that degree of freedom to to yeah to see past the constraints that we think are are kind of binding us wow brother Fapu. i i just want to say that this topic is uh it's a very deep topic it's not something to grasp within one session um we i've been a monk for 20 years but Blin has been a monk for 15 15 yeah. years and we've been meditating on this for years and we're still meditating on it. So it's, it's, it's to be free even from the notion of ultimate and historical. Right. So that's quite important to, to say because we, we don't want to bind ourselves also in the idea, do I get it or do I not get it? But we see the Dhamma like Dhamma reign. So I, I would listen back and back to Thay's teaching on it, mm -hmm. read again. My understanding of it becomes more profound as I grow in my own practice. So that's just an advice for all the listeners. Thank you, um, Brother Fablin, Brother Fapu, uh, for a very deep um, meditation, actually, on life. Actually, because it's on, on life, not just on our lives. Um, and uh, you talk about, uh, we can go and listen to Thai time and time again. I think I'll probably listen to this podcast uh, recording time and time again because I think you both uh, gave such a beautiful and clear and actually very simple given the complexity very simple um, transmission of this and how it can truly help us um, in these times and how we can be a light unto others so um, thank you both very much um, and Fapu we are 
I think we, because we know, let's break the tradition, shall we? Because this is what it's about. We, we normally have a um, have a guided meditation by you, but I think we've had a very long guided meditation. And so maybe this will be a good moment just to, uh, to stop. Um, to thank you, dear listeners, for being on this journey with us. Because also, uh, without you, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> oh, we certainly wouldn't have got this far. So um, thank you. And also thank you all for, the, for all your beautiful messages of support and acknowledgement. And, and um, it helps us a great deal in our recordings to know that this is proving to be helpful in, in people's lives. That, that's a great balm for us as well. Um, so if you did enjoy it, because we don't know for sure, <laughs> um, you can find many other episodes of our podcast series The Way Out Is In on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on other platforms that carry podcasts and also on our very own Plum Village app. And this podcast was brought to you by the generous donors of the Ticket Han Foundation. If you would like to support future episodes of the podcast and the work of the International Plum Village community, please visit www.tnhf.org slash donate. Thank you and see you next time. Goodbye. Yeah.